This episode of Day 2 Cloud is brought to you in part by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And we have a special offer for all you amazing Day 2 Cloud listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. ITPro.tv slash Day 2 Cloud and use promo code Cloud at checkout to save 30% off all plans. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today we're going to talk about cloud cost optimization. Our guests are Fred Shannon, Principal Research Director at Infotech Research Group, and Jeremy Roberts, Workshop Director for Infrastructure and Operations at Infotech Research Group. And these guys have done research and gone deep on how you optimize cloud costs. That doesn't simply mean look at your bill and look, we shouldn't be spending on that. We're not even using it. I mean, that is a component of things, but they go way more deep because it's also a cultural thing. It's a process thing. It's understanding from the entire life cycle of the workloads that you put into cloud, how to optimize and control those costs, how to deal with management when they are looking for a predictable budget, but the way you consume cloud isn't predictable, depending on what your business's compute needs are from month to month. Ned is not with us today. He had to step out because reasons. And uh, and so you've just got me as the host. Please enjoy this conversation with Fred Chenon and Jeremy Roberts of Infotech Research Group. Fred and Jeremy, welcome to Day 2 Cloud today. It is lovely to have you both. And uh, Fred, starting with you, I mean, you you pitched this show to us because you guys did some research about cloud cost optimization. So so tell us what this research was. Who, who did you talk to to gather data, et cetera? Sure. Jeremy and I work at a, a research and advisory firm. We get the benefit of um, advising on topics that we research, but sometimes it happens the other way. Sometimes we get asked questions that we have not fully researched yet. And cloud cost management was one of those slow burns that as, as, our, uh, as our members were moving to the cloud, they started to come up with these questions. And, the, and, uh, and so the research that we did was pretty organic in the sense that it primarily came from uh, people who had actually solved some of these problems. So when you're talking to somebody, a CIO, an IT leader, or an engineer about, you know, challenges they're having, oftentimes you do learn about other things that they're doing very well. So a big part of the research that we've done in the body of cloud cost management has come from people who have solved a part of the problem, but not necessarily a whole, uh, the, the whole enchilada. And so taking in a, a whole bunch of these little tiny solutions, you know, we, we have the benefit of aggregating it all. And, and, you know, that's where, that's where things like, you know, a, a good framework can come up with, or, or at least even seeing what the, what the entire problem is so that others can, can bite it off piece by piece. So you're describing what would be a nuanced solution to a complex problem. But initially, if I'm a business and I'm starting to get those cloud bills in, I could be simply overwhelmed by the size of the bill that maybe I wasn't expecting or didn't quite budget for. And so it's a simpler problem. It's like the bill is too big, Fred. Can you help me? Is it does it does it start like that? It it absolutely starts like that. And one and one of the first uh, one of the first things we want to do to help somebody is basically take a look at their bill and just start with that. Right. I feel like I'm knocking on the door saying, show me your water bill. Um, <laughs> except that I actually do want to help them not sell them more stuff. Uh, so we start there, but we make it very clear that um, this is where we're starting. This is not 
where it ends. The, in, and in fact, the, the problem is not usually the high bill and the solution isn't usually simply just, oh, you're spending a lot on Amazon EC2. You should probably use fewer of those or just buy some reserved instances. Um, the, the nuanced problems end up being things like, you know, you're spending a lot on EC2. Um, oh, I didn't realize it was that high. And, uh, you know, what were you spending three months ago? Oh, it's a lot higher. Oh, somebody turned on some virtual machines and we didn't know about that, right? And now we're getting into governance problems, roles and responsibilities problems. Okay. And, some uh, fundamental changes as well, right? So thinking about, you know, you're in the cloud, now all of a sudden you have to account for costs that you haven't traditionally accounted for before, right? So folks will come to us yeah. with this bill and they'll say, even if it's a SaaS environment, right? So it's not necessarily an EC2 instance or an instance in Azure Virtual Machines. It's, you know, a, a cloud email client. Well, now I've actually got a total cost for an individual user, right? At a given point. And I didn't have that before. So do I show that back to the business unit who hired the person or does that exist in my domain as a central IT shop, right? And so folks come to us very often with questions like that. And as Fred mentioned, we were able to sort of aggregate some of those problems and aggregate some of the responses and come up with some general statements that have uh, helped us, you know, help further folks, if that makes sense. That's an interesting metric cost per user. So that would be the end consumer or more like the IT operations person responsible for a given set of things that are being spun up in the AWS cloud? Sure. So a, a good way to think about it is uh, historically TCO has been, you know, the it, it's been a fairly complicated formula, right? So I've got a data center. I have some hardware in there. I'm depreciating it over a particular cycle. I have some folks who have to manage that hardware. I've got things like, you know, heating, cooling, insurance and all that stuff. Uh, but this is for a shared data center. So identifying my actual cost to serve an individual end user, right? Or my cost mm -hmm. to support a particular application was quite difficult. And the cloud all of a sudden takes that and says, you know, we are going to outsource a lot of that underlying management to somebody else and they are going to give us a fixed cost. So whereas before we didn't actually know exactly how much it cost us per user because we didn't take the time to conduct that TCO. Now we actually do. And so now we have a new tool at our disposal, right? Which is granularity or measured service, which is a you know a fundamental characteristic of cloud services. And some managers will come and say, well, now that I know how much it costs, right? It's not a central cost that's gonna be shared by everybody. It's you hired a person or you instantiated a virtual machine, right? And it's tagged back to your, to your department or an application that you own or support. Does IT even have any business paying this bill? Do we care or do we just show it back to you and then you sort out any sort of behavioral issues that are gonna introduce additional cost, right? <laughs> behavioral um, issues, yeah. <laughs> shame back, as we like to say. Uh, you're not, <laughs> right. If you're not going to uh, incur or, or pay the cost yourself, excuse me, you can uh, you can at least be shamed. Um, so it's, it's, it's about, of course, you know, managing the overall cost. It's about managing the complexity of your environment. It's about managing variability and all that, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, throughout the rest of this podcast. But it's also about taking this new tool set and taking full advantage of it, right? And, and the things that were historically difficult for us to do are now easy. How do they fit into our conceptualization of what a good cost management framework actually looks like? And I know that that's a very deep and philosophical question. I think Voltaire was the first to ask it. But <laughs> it's, exactly. it's one that we confront on a daily basis as analysts in this well, space. Actually, so let's drill into that uh, and, and, and invoke Voltaire. What, what is cloud cost optimization, which is the really the title of this podcast? We're not simply saying the cloud bill is too high. We got to reduce costs. Yeah, that's part of the part of it, I suppose. But cloud cost optimization is, is more nuanced. So what, what are we talking about getting done here? 
Well, it, it starts with the price, and that's usually the, the, the thing that spurs, but it's, um, it's really three-dimensional with the th- things that we want to manage or, or optimize. Uh, co- so cost is, is certainly one. Um, variability. Uh, that's a that's another one. And again, you know, when you come from a capex world where where all the assets were bought and paid for, that there isn't cost variability. Uh, I'm sending traffic in the data center down a network pipe that was bought and paid for, and storing it on disk that was bought and paid for. But in the cloud, that network uh, could be data transfer out, and that could be very variable. Um, my storage costs could be variable. I could be sending information to a database that's billed by transaction and the number of transactions. If I have any seasonality at all to my workload, the number of transactions goes up and up and down. So that's not to say don't use those services that are variable, but uh, variability of the bill is certainly an issue because it, it creates problems predicting and, and budgeting. Well, what, so, what kind of variability are customers typically seeing? Um, it, well, feels, it, it feels like it should be within a bound, right, Fred? So it shouldn't be wildly right. variable. It should be a little variable depending on your load and demands for a given month. That's right. Uh, and sometimes variability is a is a good thing. Like there are services uh, that you could be procuring in the cloud that you don't use one month. And then the next month you use a lot of like, like security services that do uh, incident uh, detection or, or, or whatever that, you know, if you have no such incidents to follow up on, you know, I think it's guard duty or it doesn't, uh, doesn't do a whole lot, but if you've got something, you've got all of a sudden, you know, some kind of thing that requires investigation. Now your next month's bill of that particular service is, is very high. And that's very hard to predict. But the the classical approach to that was would be you might have been paying for a, a tool that you're kind of playing a flat rate for. And it seems like wasted money, except the one month of the year you have to use it. So, um, you know, and data recovery is another thing, right? Um, it, you know, the, the cost that it takes to restore data from the cloud back to, you know, another cloud or maybe back to your data center, uh, you only pay when that happens. And so there, there's a variable cost to that, but, uh, you know, you can always rationalize that as, well, that's the cost of recovery, but we didn't have to do that before. And that's why, uh, that's why it's a, it's a bit of a shift. So sometimes optimization is, is real, or sometimes cost management is really just about understanding that that's the new cost model. And, and we just have to understand how we can explain it, um, not necessarily reduce it. So that's the variability aspect. The other one is complexity. Uh, the cloud, I mean, you know, Jeremy mentioned, that uh, you know, we didn't have the we didn't do all the TCO stuff before in the data center. I mean, because it was really hard. The cloud service providers have done it for us because that's their business. They have to bill us. So, but if you look into the you know the guts of uh, cost and utilization <laughs> reporting or anything like you know Azure Advisor is another service that sits on top of their cost. Thing. I mean, it's it is super complex and mm-hmm. and think about the people that are usually getting the invoices right your your IT asset managers or procurement people they're not they're not trained in this stuff so they just get a bill and go wow like i don't even this is a five page uh, aws bill i don't even understand anything that's on mm-hmm. here um, but i know that it's probably those infrastructure people or it's probably it so you know what are the strategies that we can do to reduce complexity uh, to make the bill more understandable, you know, categorizing things um, and, uh, and, and making it all sort of, you know, again, because with complexity, with, when you have clarity in your bill, you can manage the individual costs better too, because you start to understand what, what, what they are. But if the bill is complex, 
you can't even. You're get talking started. about interpreting the bill, so taking that that's obtuse right. thing you get that's pages and pages long from the cloud service provider and making it, giving you Digestible. a framework so that you know how to uh, to interpret the thing. So I, I would right. compare it to back in the day we'd have WAN bills, and there's a number of companies I worked with where there was some human that was responsible to audit those on a monthly or at least quarterly basis to make sure we weren't paying for circuits that we'd asked to be disconnected. And mm-hmm. hey, three mm-hmm. months later, we disconnected that, but we're still paying for it. What's going on? And then go to the WAN provider and say, hey, guys, and get that all sorted out. It's It feels like a similar role here, except for the obtuseness of it, where there's not a circuit ID you can match to a site and kind of figure it out from there. That's right. You've just yeah. got pages and pages and pages of, of obtuseness. It's not always intuitive either, right? Like, you know, what's an elastic beanstalk if you're a right. payroll clerk, right? Like, <laughs> right. you know, it's, you know is, this, is, this, is this Ethan trying to sneak a drink by and expense it? Like, you yeah. know, what, what are people actually buying? You know, what does this do? You know, why would I pay money for this? Why is it 17 cents, but repeated 40,000 times, right? Like these are, there, there are things in the cloud that I think a lot of folks aren't necessarily used to handling. Uh, you know, this isn't a universal problem. Uh, you know, sometimes it's fairly simple, you know, if it's the transactions or, or uh, uh, gigabytes of storage or something like that, it's easy enough to interpret. But that complexity, you know, just getting this massive bill that might only be, you know, for an enterprise, maybe it's $17,000. But yeah, it is 40,000 lines, right? Like that there's going to be some manpower required to actually parse the thing uh, and to process it. Um, and that historically hasn't necessarily existed. Well, that, that uh, where that's it has. A- that manpower you talk about, is that an issue of educating the humans to understand what they're reading or give them a technological solution that can parse that bill and present it to them in a more understandable way? I, I think the, the, the roles is really at the root of, of a, a lot of these issues. And that's usually where we start in terms of our, uh, of our advice is, is understanding what all the roles are, because it's still going to probably be that that clerk's position to get the invoice. But there are things that can happen before that invoice arrives that makes that invoice more readable. And so when that invoice gets forwarded to somebody else just for analysis, and that's that's a primitive way of doing analysis, by the way, um, that uh, that it that all the all the metadata is already there and kind of helped sort it out. Um, the the biggest challenge that that we uh, start to uncover when we get into this is if you know just asking people whose job it is to a get the bill b um you know who do you sh- who, who do you have to show it to right who are, who are the parties that are responsible for consuming that bill and and reacting to it um we uncover that at pretty much every organization we're we're, we're talking to there is a role that is missing because it didn't exist before in the data center. Like, yeah, Ethan, you mentioned the, the, the WAN person was, mm. was doing it a lot in those, in that, in the case of the, the telco, but, but yeah, in, in traditionally uh, in IT, that, that role was not present. There wasn't somebody who was responsible for looking at a bill month by month or, or even more frequently than that. And, uh, and making adjustments or or splitting it up and showing it back to different business units. So, so we'll go through sort of the, all the plan, functions all the build you know functions like architecture and and you know whose job is it to make sure that when we design uh, cluster databases in the cloud that they're done in a way that is cost optimal somebody needs to be accountable for that uh, and then in operations it's more about who's getting who's getting reports who who's gonna you know who's who's the one that's going to who's going to get alerts if we exceed the budgets who sets what those budgets are um, so there's a lot of questions about who 
And, uh, and that's where, that's where we start to find the gap of, you know, oh, maybe it should have been the architecture team, but they didn't know that maybe it should have been the engineering team, but it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't really part of what they did. Or maybe there is a new role that, uh, and I've seen many different versions of this role. I mean, cloud cost manager, cloud, I think, uh, what was the, the, the really cool one? Like cloud financial analysts, <laughs> um, cloud economist. I think that's my favorite. Um, but, uh, but yeah, really there's uh, there, there's opportunity also for maybe not a new position you hire for. It's not like, it's not on your LinkedIn profile or anything. Um, but certainly it's, it's a responsibility that somebody uh, undertakes. But you're also talking about that um, economic viewpoint being introduced mm -hmm. to a project early on. That is, there's rules and responsibilities that are assigned to costs so that you don't have an architect that's like, I'm going to overbuild this thing because I've always overbuilt things and I'm going to get right. that money once. That is, we, have a, we have to have a different mindset when procuring cloud resources. You don't buy the biggest instances. You don't buy it. You, it it's, it's different from that to get to that optimized uh, cloud cost, but to pull that off, you've got to have that happen very early in the project, or yeah. it could be you've built something that's hard to back out of architecturally. That's right. Um, so, so there is certainly a role play. We've been talking a lot about the, the governance space. The other space is in the, in the, in the architecture realm. So, so designing with cost in mind, I mean, that's a, a newish uh, discipline. That's a newest part of the discipline. But guess what? We've been designing with other targets in mind the whole time. When, a, when, a, when an architect designs a, a system, they might know how many transactions it's supposed to, you know, they have a transactions per second thing in their mind and they want to hit that. And they might over provision or over build, but, the, but, but ultimately they want to hit that transactions per second. Well, why not set cost targets? Right. What are because we know now that this isn't going to be, you know, we didn't get all the money up front. It's not capitally funded. We're not just, you know, we didn't just get a million dollars and that's sort of what the budget we have to build it. And I'm not just going to architect my solution now to, to meet that fixed cost. What I have to do instead is, is understand what are the cost targets for this platform I'm building uh, or, or procuring or, or whatever. And uh, how can I design the system such that it's going to achieve those relative cost targets and not go wildly over? It does feel a bit antithetical to what happened with uh, shadow IT in the cloud to begin with. Devs just wanted things to be easy. I can swipe a card off I go. Yeah. yeah. Now we're talking about now there's going to be a budget, a budgeting, a cost analysis component to this IT project right from the beginning like we always had, but because we're, but I guess that's because we're all smarter now. We all know that it's not going to be cheaper to run this in the cloud. I'm going to need to control costs and pay attention to this carefully. Uh, so it, it, am I, it, am I right in saying that there is a bit of a shift here where some people that were used to just having things easy, uh, it's no longer as easy as it was. And it's kind of like the security game, Fred, right? You got to have those security people involved right up front, even though you don't want to. That, that, that's right. The, the shift is uh, that there's a lot there's a lot less work that that's done up front and you pay for it, you know, month by month or hour by hour or sometimes second by second. And that does take a different mindset to prepare for. Uh, so that's that's really ultimately the, the shift that is taking place is uh, I mean, it's like it's like, you know, it's like anything where you moved from uh, something you built yourself to something you're paying for, you know, at a at a utility rate.
I'm going to interrupt the podcast for a minute here to talk about IT training. You remember the ransomware attack on the gas pipeline last year? It caught your attention probably, caught mine. There's a key thing here. Cybersecurity professionals are in demand to prevent that kind of thing, but there are not enough humans out there to fill all the positions. There's over 500,000 open cybersecurity roles. You can become a cybersecurity professional if you get some training, some online training. It is never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. IT Pro TV has you covered for your training. They cover everything. CompTIA to Cisco to EC Council to Microsoft. They, they've got all of it, including the cloudy stuff. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. And, and the way they present the information, you know, some presenters are like, they're reading from the book and they're super boring. That is not IT Pro TV's format at all. They use engaging hosts that they're going to present the information in a talk show format and really keep it interesting. And they do it live. They, they're live every day. And then once they recorded that live show, it goes studio to web in 24 hours. As you're digging through their website, looking for content, all the courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, job role. You can find what you're looking for without a lot of trouble. And then when you pick the thing and you're ready to go, you can stream IT Pro TV's courses, uh, either the live stuff or the on-demand stuff from anywhere in the world via whatever platform you like, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or there's apps on iOS or Android. Learn IT, pass your certs, and then get a great job, maybe in cybersecurity, with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash day2cloud for 30% off all plans. Use promo code cloud at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash day2cloud. Day2cloud is day, the number two, cloud, and then use promo code cloud at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash day2cloud and use promo code cloud at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now let's get back to the podcast. Is there a way when I go through this process to communicate to management that costs are being managed or that maybe you figured out a way to save some money or something like that? How do you communicate that considering the, the arcaneness of our bills and such? Well, if you're not already hearing it from them, I mean, that's it. That's first of all, a good thing, right? So this is a great way to be proactive. And I would just basically use those, those same three principles that, that, that we mentioned, right? So there, you, you present management with, there are going to be three challenges of costs in the cloud. One of them is going to be the price. Uh, one of them is going to be our ability to understand what we're being billed for, the complexity. And one of them is going to be the variability. And so a cost management practice um, and, and, you know, basically getting good at doing this discipline is going to help control those three things, not eliminate any one of them, but, but keep them all in some element of control. Yeah. Keep them all in some element of control. It's funny when one of the challenges I've always had as an engineer trying to communicate to management is, is knowing what they know and don't know what they have context for when I'm communicating an idea. Uh, so that can be, don't get too technical, but still make a point kind of a thing. That's so right, there's that's something right. they can hold on to and walk away with and remember the important thing you're trying to get across. They don't care about elastic beanstalks. 
No, right. You don't, you don't want to, and this is something that we end pretty much every engagement that we do with is a targeted communication plan, right? So what do you as the developer need to know? Well, guess what? You're going to have to optimize some of your code because we're being billed per transaction. What do you as the end user need to know? You're going to log into a web portal to access this service where you didn't before, or maybe we just migrate the backend and you don't know anything, right? And it's just smoother or works better where you are. What do you as the CFO need to know? Well, guess what? Now we, we're going to either need to change our allocation or you're going to have to give us a fund that we draw down. You know, we're not capitalizing our resources anymore. What do you as the CEO need to know? Oh, we're digitally transforming. You know, like there's, there's targets uh, for communication that every individual group is going to need. And just by publishing a, a pamphlet and handing the same one out to everybody, you're going to get nobody reading anything. Um, so we always suggest that, uh, that, that, that you create your communication with that in mind. Yeah, yeah. The the exercise really is uh, all right for each one of those audience members that Jeremy mentioned. What do we? What do they need to know? And how do we communicate that to them? Right. So the CFO is a good example. Right. What do they need to know? Well, they're going to care about uh, you know our ability to do chargeback and showback to different business units. Okay. They're gonna. They're gonna. They've been talking about chargebacks. Okay. That's that's interesting. Let's talk. Let's show that. Let's. Tell them that there are things that we need to do to establish the ability to do showbacks, i.e., tagging and categorization. Um, and our we are prevented from doing chargebacks because the you know the the financial operations people at the company actually don't have the right accounting buckets to allow us to do that anyway. So we're gonna crawl, walk, run. We're gonna start by doing showbacks. And if they really want chargebacks then they're going to, we're going to have to work with, with finance operations. It's, it's, it's their problem to solve. Um, so, so yeah. And, and uh, you know, there are the other aspects of, uh, of management to, or, and, and what they need to hold on to is, you know, with, again, going back to those, those three dimensions um, with cost savings. Uh, I, th I think the biggest myth about cloud is, you know, we, that we go to the cloud to save money. Uh, that's something that most uh, man, uh, managers or leaders need to, and we're not saying, well, that's a lie. That's a fallacy. It'll never happen. What we need to, them to understand is it is possible to save money in the cloud, but it's probably not going to be the outcome. We need to set their expectation for the outcome is probably going to look like this. The things that we do in the cloud are cheaper when we do them in the cloud rather than building them ourselves. So in that sense, we are actually saving money, but but our bill may be more expensive than what we're used to paying in the past, because guess what? We're actually using a lot of that innovation in the cloud. So uh, at the end of the day, we've saved money because we're doing things we weren't doing before, and we're not paying as much for them as we would have in the past if we built them ourselves. Well, you're and saying it's more of, a, of more of a cost benefit analysis, Fred. Yeah, the dollar exactly. spend might be higher, but it's such a big win for these reasons. We get to do That's all the right, stuff right. as a business. We, it would have been harder for us to do before. That's right. I've unlocked new markets or I'm able to, I'm able to, I've increased resiliency. Uh, I can do business now in um, more geographically than I could before, you know, benefit, 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 things we couldn't do before. That's is, how I would shift the cost conversation. I mean, is, is that cost conversation still happening a lot? I mean, or I guess, yes. is that myth still prevalent? Oh, I'm going to save money going to, going to the cloud. It is. Yeah, it is. And really? I'm equally, I'm equally surprised, but it has to do with where people are in there in that journey. Um, so I am, I am surprised when I hear that from somebody who, who is clearly very mature in the cloud, it's sort of like, well, you haven't realized this yet. Um, but when you have an organization that still hasn't 
put more than just a few workloads in the cloud, or maybe they're just consuming SaaS. Uh, in, and now they're starting to look at taking the, the platforms that are their bread and butter and putting them into platform as a service or something. They still believe that they can, they are, they're going to save money in the cloud. And the money that they're going to save is on like, you know, I don't have to use IT as much, but what they don't realize is, um, they didn't have to use IT as much when they moved to SaaS because that was, you know, that was sort of non-commodity stuff. But their IT department is very, very actively involved in the, those platforms that are still running in their data center because that is their bread and butter. And when those go to, you know, Elastic Beanstalk or whatever, um, their IT department is still really involved in them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I differentiate it, Fred, as uh, if it, it has to do with application delivery. Your business has an application for your internal support or for your customers, something that's public facing, and you have to build a platform to deliver that application. Whether you're doing that in your own data center, data centers or colo facilities on your own metal or you move that to cloud, you haven't really shifted what has to, to happen to, to make get that done. You're, you still need technical expertise, deep technical expertise That's right. That's right. to do that yeah. effectively. So you're not yeah. going to make IT people go away just because you moved it to, to AWS and there's an API involved now. Right. And that's and that's about helping them understand that cloud. It's unfortunate that we always use the same word cloud to describe SaaS from PaaS from IaaS, uh, because because th those are those are what you have to understand clearly to understand. Oh, OK, when I move, you know, exchange to exchange online, it means one thing. But, you know, that was moving to the cloud. But when I move uh, Oracle databases to uh, Amazon Redshift or or something like that, then that that's that's something else. Yeah, but taking your, like if you were running your own exchange and you just moved to 0365, okay, that is basically outsourcing email. Yeah. That's a different animal than picking up where you're doing your app delivery and moving it to a different platform. If as soon as there's a platform involved, you got to have those technical experts. Or even then hosting exchange in a uh, in an infrastructure environment, which you could theoretically do if you wanted to, right? It's a virtual yeah. machine. You could run it in AWS. <laughs> I think that- uh, Yeah, yeah, we, we moved email ran, to the cloud. <laughs> I think we actually ran SharePoint out of AWS for a while at one yeah. point. Like it's definitely a possible um, outcome. I'm not sure that it makes a lot of sense, but like to, to, to back to your original point, right? Is this cost conversation still, you know, being uh, waged in, in such simplistic terms? In my experience, I actually, I don't tend to see people say the cloud should be cheaper. I tend to see people say, I'm not moving to the cloud because it's more expensive. We say, well, if that's the only thing that you're considering, then absolutely, you're going to have difficulty making that case. Uh, I think it was Benjamin Graham, who's a famous investor. He was like Warren Buffett's mentor. He said, you know, cost is what you pay. Value is what you get. Right. right? And so we like to, to, to frame the cloud in, in, in the context of value as opposed to strict cost outlay, because you're almost always going to lose on the cost side, not necessarily universally, right? There are some workloads that are excellent fits for cloud and they can be optimized and it could be a big money saver. Um, but in terms of things like agility and resiliency and modernization and the ability to hire people to maintain your platform and, you know, uh, elimination of technical debt and all these things, um, there's a lot of potential value there. Uh, and so, you know, we want to make sure that we're not just glossing over that. And I think a colleague of ours actually wrote a uh, research note called, you know, from cost to value, you know, having that cloud conversation. Um, and so that's. I, I, I'm going to overstate this a bit, Jeremy, but I would put it that uh, cloud means you can take the infrastructure for granted. I think that is exaggerating it a bit, but it makes and the point I'm trying to make is. As opposed to ordering servers, you have to rack and put operating systems on and put a hypervisor mm -hmm. on and, you know, and all of that, and then have the people that got to maintain them and keep them going and fix the hard drives and the power supplies when they fail. You can forget all that. You can take all that for granted now because you're, you're in cloud, 
you can't <laughs> take any of the rest of it for granted. Um, yeah. But it does give you this agility, this uh, ability to stand up that infrastructure very quickly and get that tedious time done. No long buy cycles, no long uh, waiting for stuff to show up on the dock and get it installed. Um, even if you've got all that and it's networking, you need to stand up some component of the network so that it's secure and multi-tenant and all of that. And you got to put in the requests and have people get all that done. Forget all that. Now you've got infrastructure as code. All that means is you can you can take that for granted um, and, and get uh, some some big value out of that and bring things to market more quickly. What's that worth to you? It is quantifiable. You can put a dollar value on it if you if you dig yep. deeply enough. And some folks will. I mean, the, the way that, that I see that phrase very often in the strategies that I have a hand in is doing more valuable work. Right. Unless you are Amazon. Right. Unless you are Azure you're not in the business of racking servers, right? You're in the business of doing other stuff and that's sort of a means to an end. So if I take that responsibility away from you, theoretically, and I say this, theoretically, you should be doing something with that reclaimed time and effort that is, uh, you know, specific to your niche or whatever, whatever that happens to be. So, you know, if I'm not spending time troubleshooting my exchange server, maybe I'm building out workflows that are going to enable my people to process orders more quickly, right? You know, if I'm, if I'm not worrying about the underlying infrastructure, I, you know, my developers have more time uh, and more of my energy to help optimize for, you know, a custom application that we're building. Right. So like the, that's what, that's really what the cloud is designed to do. I think Fred, I've heard you refer to it as like a force multiplier, you know, it writ large is a force multiplier. That's what the cloud, I think that's the promise of the cloud. And I mean, if we go back to the origins, I know this is day two cloud, but let's talk about day zero cloud for <laughs> yeah. a second. Yeah. Uh, if we go back to AWS, right. You know, there's this, there's this myth floating around that Amazon created AWS because they just had all of this extra compute that they needed to get rid of. They you know, this uh, Jeff Bezos walked into the office. He was just holding so much compute. It was falling out of his hands, you know, like a Grammy and Michael Jackson hands at the awards in the 80s, right? Like, he's, I just got so many of these. I'm, I'm dropping them everywhere. So much compute. I need, I need to give it to someone. No, that's not what happened, right? What happened was they found that every time they needed to stand up a new project, they were repeating a lot of work. So they're not selling excess compute. They're selling that systematization, right? They're selling that yep. standardization. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're selling a, a process and, and a tool set. Right. And, and I think that when you start thinking about cloud that way, the value starts to become a little bit more clear. Okay. But I could argue this the other way is because we are seeing cloud repatriation happen. So if I, if I argue the point this way, we we're talking about undifferentiated heavy lifting. I don't want to be in the business of rack and stack and sure. running data centers because why would I bother? But then you could say, well, wait a minute. If I took cloud operational principles, like you were just saying, that's really how mm -hmm. AWS got started and what they were selling. And I bring those in-house because Kubernetes, yay. Uh, let's say I decide to build Kubernetes uh, in expertise in-house and then begin standing up applications there and go to that cloud model, consuming infrastructure via API, automating infrastructure stand-up via pipelines that my devs can mostly do. And all I got to worry is just keeping my Kubernetes cluster up and running as an infrastructure professional. Well, is there a case to be made for bringing it back in-house? Congratulations, you've invented the private cloud. But Yay. in all seriousness, right? Like this is this is there is certainly a case to be made for it, right? They're they are operating infrastructure in a certain way, and then they're charging you a margin on top of what it costs them to do it. If you can operate at a scale anywhere close to them, or your core business involves you know infrastructure provisioning in a way that maybe a traditional uh, businesses uh, core business doesn't involve it, like you could certainly make the case 
that running a private cloud is valid for you or even a hybrid cloud solution or something like that. Take uh, an example of a major company like a Dropbox, right? I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but they were sort of the the uh, the arch repatriator. Um, and there was an article that Andreessen Horowitz, which is the venture capital firm, put out not too long ago talking about you know repatriating cloud solutions. And they were arguing that public cloud providers you know, by their very existence and the fact that they have among their customer base, many US-based startups are just shaving market cap off of these startups, right? Because once you once you get to a certain scale, it of course it makes sense for you to bring some of that back in-house, right? There are some things that you are actually adding value by managing internally. There are some things uh, where, you know, scale plays in your favor or particular skill or expertise or developing your own hardware makes sense. Uh, I mean, like think about Netflix as another example. You know, we talk a lot about Dropbox and Netflix as being, you know, sort of these big cloud customers. Uh, Netflix is an AWS customer. You know, they're loud and proud about their use of AWS for certain things. But when it comes down to the things that are core to their business, uh, they actually will develop like their own hardware, right? They've got ISP partners. They've got, you know, points of presence. They've got, you know, a CDN network that they've developed uh, in-house because to them, that was core to their business in a way that, you know, maybe some of the, uh, some of the services that they purchased from Amazon aren't. So I completely take your point. Well, you make an interesting point about scale. So that Andreessen Horowitz report that you mentioned was panned a bit by some people because I believe they cited Dropbox as the the main example of those, uh, a company that repatriated a lot and saved money. And people were saying, yeah, but that's not a model for everybody because look how big Dropbox is, you know, how much data they're moving around and all of that. So, yeah, of course, they could save money. Could everybody save money repatriating? Eh, You know, maybe not. Probably not. In fact, some folks argued yeah, so yeah it's, it's hard to say that that perhaps they were trying to say in that in that uh, report that you have to be of the size of dropbox and to repatriate and save money and that's not necessarily true but it is an example of like what jeremy was saying that dropbox got to i, I think it was like two hundred thousand users or some point of scale that, that they decided at this point it's going to make sense for us to bring it back or well mm. bring it back i'm pretty sure they were born in the cloud but but at this point it's going to be better for us to you know we can now buy storage at a, at a particular volume that it's going to be cheaper for us to continue to grow uh predictably on premises in this conversation we've talked about managing the cost that we have and there's almost been this undercurrent of yeah if once you understand your cost that's probably the cost but is there an element also of we're wasting money here because certain workloads, certain database instances, whatever, are spun up that no one's really using or they were over-provisioned. Can we catch those things too? Is that a common problem? That is. And it, it, so when we when we go through the roles and responsibilities and we simply just ask the question whose job it is to, you know, periodically audit the infrastructure for uh, for those sort of entities, for things that are unused, things that could be turned off to right right size workloads. Um, we always we are always uh, I'm, I'm frequently I don't have a case where somebody recognizes that's not their job. Whether or not they're actually doing that, different story. And that goes back to, again, in the data center, when we had our own data center, um, there was never a priority on turning stuff off because, you know, <laughs> somebody's <laughs> else is paying the space and power bill. And I mean, I'm, I'm guilty that we used to leave servers racked in the data center so that no one else would take the space, uh, you know, and, and, and we would only decommission a server when we had a newer one to put in there. I mean, that was the practice that we got with, we were in the habit of. So again, this yep. is about shift. This is about understanding that when, you know, when you're not in the room and the lights are on, mom and dad are paying the bill. So turn the lights off, right? Whose job is it going to be? 
in operations likely uh, to to periodically look at the environment and determine usage. Um, so it's just it's a function that needs to be done. What what I like most about the whole COPS optimization practice is that it, it just it fits so well into traditional IT operations because cost cost is just a number. Uh, cost is a metric, and and IT operations are really good at managing metrics as long as they know that it's something that they have to manage. So if if there's a if there's a number that's uh, that that I've got to just keep my eye on, and there are practices I can put in place to ensure that that number remains a nominal level, then I just need to know what those things are, and I just need to know how often I need to do them, and uh, and and put those processes and procedures in place, and actually you know and actually run them and report back on them. Well, Fred, you and, you and I are uh, network guys from way back, and of course we had our network management stations and our red light, green light, and measuring mm-hmm. utilization of bandwidth links, and so it makes you make it sound like something measuring something like that. It is exactly measuring something. What's the difference between you know measuring cost and 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 within a certain bounds, and measuring CPU within a certain or network bandwidth within a certain bounds or disks utilization? Um, we have to just go and figure out how we can get that data. Right, and that's at Amazon or, or AWS. They, uh, Amazon or Azure, um, make that data available. We have to go and get it. Right. Sometimes it comes in in a weird format. Sometimes it comes in in a you know, oh, you've got to turn on this Redshift database so you can get the cost and utilization reporting out of Amazon. Solvable problems, but we have to get the data out, and we have to get the data in front of the right people. Again, roles and responsibilities. Whose job is it? And uh, and then make sure, okay, fine. It's Fred's job to monitor cost reporting on a on a month to month or week to week basis. So that's fine. Now we know it's Fred's job. How does Fred get the data? Let's go and get make sure that he's got the data. How do we want him to present the data? What does he do with the data? Does he just react on it, or does he you know send a report to somebody? Well, that, um, yeah, that was my next question. What do I do with the data? Because if you're you're making it IT ops responsibility, or you're suggesting it's appropriate for IT ops to be monitoring it's an, costs, it's an operational something that happens over. Uh, over and over again on a repeatable schedule is a is an operational task. Yes. Well, I mean, normally, if something was broken in, from an engineering perspective, a line goes down, uh, a VM That's falls true. over. Yep. I fix it. If the if it's a cost out of bounds, I've exceeded threshold on some cost. I, I mean, I can't shut it down just because it went high. What, what is what is an action item I take? Alert? I don't know. Someone in accounting, a manager, or something? You're saying. It could be, it could be, maybe it's an architecture problem from there. Maybe, maybe we're finding that it's frequently over cost and it needs to be that, that information needs to feed back to design. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a logical place to take it. Uh, Certainly it needs to go to management. Uh, They would rather hear from their, their IT ops people who are looking at the bill in, in more, in a more near real time manner than, than getting an invoice. So Fred, do you remember uh, a little while back, you and I worked with a public sector organization that, that tackled this exact problem. And what we did was we actually built out what we called a right sizing workflow, right? So yep. it was basically alert generated. All right, what happens now? What do we do? Right. And they, and I mean, there is a specific organization that, you know, they had uh, some, some budgeting issues and, you know, their, uh, the, the amount of power that their IT folks had might have been a little bit different than what you would get in a private sector company or even a different type of organization. So keep that in mind. But basically what they said was, all right, it's going to escalate to probably the manager or maybe even the CIO. The CIO will look at it and they'll say, how extreme an overrun is this? Can I allocate money from somewhere else and just cover this? Is it an ongoing problem? If yes, 
you know, I will solve the problem that way. And then we'll sort of review how we ended up here. You know, if no, I'm actually going to have to go and, uh, and, and talk to our finance people and see if I can allocate additional funds. And, you know, worst case, I'm going to actually have to go testify in front of a subcommittee at the state house, <laughs> uh, you know, to allocate mm. these additional funds. And that's usually, you know, an everlasting job stopper if you do that too much. Um, so, you know, they had a workflow that they had designed specifically for this, right? And they called their right sizing workflow. Um, and it basically incorporated all of the layers of approval that they would need to do additional spend. Um, they also at the architectural level had incorporated like buffers, right? So it wasn't like if they were a cent over, there was no money. It was, yeah. you know, they were pr projecting a cost and they were hoping that it would yep. land sort of within a range. Uh, and, you know, this was, again, a lot of this was sort of perspective. They hadn't, they didn't have a huge cloud footprint at the time, but, you know, they, they had addressed this issue and this is how they had had chosen to, uh, to deal with it. Um, one of one thing or some be, some best practices, excuse me, that we suggest uh, in the cloud and the infrastructure side is you know set up alerts. The provider will will give you a trend line saying, hey, you're looking dangerously close to exceeding a budget. Unless you're using credits, they are unlikely to actually cut off your service when you hit that budget. But they'll send you an alert saying you're getting close. Uh, and then you can do stuff also like tag individual workloads mm -hmm. for right sizing. So you can say we instantiated this. I'm going to give it a tag, uh, and then I'm going to run a report, and I've got a list of workloads that I need to review because they've been up for three months or however long, you know, so there, there are techniques that you can use to manage this. If I'm listening to the show and I'm an organization of, you know, whatever size, maybe I'm trying to decide if I'm too small of an org to go through all this headache with this cost optimization stuff. Uh, is there a too small of an organization or is this one of those things? If I'm smart, I'm baking this in from the beginning. I would say if you're smart, you're baking it in from the beginning, but I think that the amount of effort that you put in is going to vary. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there are basically, there's, there's, there's sort of a crawl, walk, run uh, approaches to cost management. And, uh, and, you know, there, there are sort of simple approaches you can take in the, in the realms of, of governance and uh, billing and alerting and uh, show back and charge back and budgeting um, in those kind of realms that is, you know, E easy and less effortful. Um, but the moment any one of those becomes there, there, there a problem area, there's, you know, you can up your maturity game a little bit, right? So maybe today I don't have to do any show back. So I'm just not even going to put any effort into it until all of a sudden I've got business units, uh, units saying, Hey, we pay it too much money. And, you know, but okay, well then, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start to implement some tagging categorization and I'm going to see if I can, you know, maybe even change my, my, my billing account profile with Microsoft so that I get multiple invoices, one per business unit. I'll do some work to ensure that I can do a little bit more showback. And now I'm, I'm upping my maturity in the showback space or, or in the reporting space so that I can, I can tackle that problem. But I didn't have to do that until it became an issue. Cause we're not saying that, you know, there's one way to do cost management and it looks like this and everybody should do it that way. Um, I think it's, it's good to just sort of like keep an eye on where the, the problem areas are and there are levels of maturity that can be applied to each of those problem areas. It's pretty simple. I mean, like you could, it could be as basic as just turning on the Azure advisor and they'll send you an alert saying, Hey, it looks like, you know, this workload has been spinning and you're not using it or whatever. Like that, that's easy enough. Right. And then it can get as complicated as I've got this multi-cloud deployment and I'm paying, you know, Zesty or, you know, one of these uh, uh, cloud management platform vendors, a hundred thousand dollars a year to help me manage this, you know, wild deployment that I've got. And I've got a dedicated staff member and then it could be everything in between. Right. 
Um, and I think that's really, I think that's really a decision that's going to need to be taken based on the size of the platform, the relative maturity, the complexity of the environment, the perspective, you know, potential savings that, that, that you may actually get, you know, you don't want to spend a hundred thousand dollars to save 50. The, the point you're making here though, is if I haven't set up the appropriate metrics, I should be measuring. It's not impossible to retrofit my existing environment. No, it's a little more difficult, right? Like you might yeah. have to, you know, tag things at the point of reinstantiation or have a rule going forward where tags are mandatory and then work through your backlog or whatever. But yeah, you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed this very, very, very much for people that want to dig into this topic more and uh, and find out just more stuff about how to manage their costs in the cloud. I mean, I know you guys uh, do some research and can help there. And I think there's some other resources you can recommend too, Fred. I, I really like the, uh, the O'Reilly book, Cloud FinOps by uh, J.R. Stormont and uh, Michael Fuller. Um, it's very, very, very practical. Uh, and it, uh, it informed a lot of what we did. It helped us figure out sort of those different areas. Uh, and uh, you know, it was published in December 2019, so it doesn't feel like it's too old yet. And um, yeah, that, that would be my sort of follow-up reading for this topic. And Fred, are you on the internet anywhere? You do anything social these days? Uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Fred Chagnon. I'm sure that that'll be written down somewhere, so I don't have to spell it. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much, I'm findable. Same thing for you, Jeremy. Uh, any resources you'd like to recommend or uh, social places that people can find you? So I strongly suggest uh, doing the basic fundamentals courses for the cloud provider of your choice. So even if you don't want to, uh, you know, go all in and get all of your Azure, you know, certified DevOps and everything like that, do the fundamentals and they'll give you their basic cost saving techniques. And that can be, you know, 15 minutes uh, in a module. It's very well spent, right? I mean, Microsoft actually just has a list of things that you can do to save money, you know, put it in a, in a cheaper region, refactor it to fit, uh, you know, your specific needs and stop, you know, lifting and shifting. They'll give, they'll give you a long list. And, and that's not necessarily the Bible, but it's a great place to start because they get these questions a lot and this is what they suggest. So I, I, I very much recommend some of the vendor material on this because they're going to have some specific advice. Uh, as far as keeping in touch with me, I'm unfortunately not on Twitter. Uh, I was at one point. I just couldn't keep up with it. But you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Jeremy Roberts and I work at Infotech Research Group with Fred. So that's how you can sort me through the, uh, the doubtless dozens of other Jeremy Robertses. Uh, and feel free to give me a follow or send me a message. Uh, if you're trying to sell me something, be creative. You know, I do respond to those. And my favorite is the guy who sent me a sales pitch. I said, yes. And then he sent me the same sales pitch without responding to my original one two weeks later. So don't be that guy. But everybody else, hit me up. Now, Jeremy, when you're not doing stuff at, uh, at Infotech Research, uh, you're, you're involved in poli-sci in some way, aren't you? Yes, I'm a trained political scientist. Uh, if you uh, if you search me up, you can find some articles uh, or one article anyway that I've written on uh, Arizona politics. And you can find an interview I did about that on uh, the NPR affiliate in Arizona. Uh, he had a golden voice, not quite as golden as yours, Ethan. And it was a great experience. So I'll just say I like talking about myself and the work that I've done. So check that out, too. <laughs> great stuff. Fred Chanon and uh, Jeremy Roberts, thank you. Thanks to both of you for being on the show today. Virtual high fives to you out there for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows we would love to hear them you can hit up me or ned bellavance who was absent today but we both monitor on twitter at day two cloud show if you're not a twitter person fill out the form on ned's fancy website nedinthecloud.com and let us know the topics you would like us to cover did you know that you don't have to scream into the technology void alone the packet pushers podcast network has a free slack group that is open to everyone 
vendors included. Visit packetpushers.net slash slack and join. Read the rules. One of those rules is that it's a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, solve problems together, etc. Packetpushers.net slash slack. We hope to see you in there. There's about 1,900 engineers as we're recording this that are in that chat room. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 